Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. And tonight we're going to look at the sixth of the seven churches here in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. We're going to look at the church in Philadelphia. And just so you know, it's not Pennsylvania. So, talking about ancient Philadelphia. So follow along with me as I read Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. These are the words of Jesus Christ himself. Don't let the red letter go uh, overlooked, right? And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, thank you for this opportunity, this privilege, this honor, this joy, this blessing of being able to study your word together. And we know that your word says faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. And nowhere do we hear the word of Christ more clearly than here in these seven letters that he wrote to his beloved bride. And Lord, we're included in, this, in these letters. We, we, we've been seeing how Uh, relevant and applicable they are to our lives. And so I pray tonight that you would open each of our ears and allow us to hear that which you want to say to each one of us and to us as a church, we pray that we would be receptive and responsive to your word tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, St. Paul's Chapel in Lower Manhattan was built in 1766. It's the oldest building in New York City. In fact, George Washington worshiped there. It is best known today, however, as the little chapel that stood because of how it survived unscathed as the World Trade Center towers came down across the street less than 100 yards away. And on the day after 9-11, one of the clergy staff at the church arrived expecting to see major damage and was amazed to find the church was without even a pane of glass broken. And in the tragic aftermath of 9-11, St. Paul's Chapel became a haven for rescue and recovery workers at Ground Zero. And as the recovery efforts started at the World Trade Center site, hundreds of rescue workers came to Lower Manhattan to search for survivors and began sorting, they began sorting through the, the, the rubble. And since long, exhausting shifts prevented many of them from going home, the chapel opened its doors so that rescue workers and police and firefighters uh, could get cleaned up, they could eat a good meal, uh, and they could sleep. And so so during all hours of the day and night, hungry, weary folks would stagger through the gates of that chapel knowing it was a place they could rest for a few hours before returning to the pit, as they called it. In the first three months after September 11, thousands of police officers and firefighters and National Guardsmen and Port Authority workers and construction and sanitation crews and engineers and technicians were changed 
obviously by what they experienced at Ground Zero, but also they were changed by the ministry of that faithful little church and its many volunteers. Some of you may have visited that. Has anybody gone to see that little chapel when you've gone to see the 9-11 memorial there in New York City? Uh, It's a popular spot now uh, because it has an extensive audio video history of 9-11 along with a number of the, the, the exhibits and banners commemorating the event. Well, I I share that story because I've titled tonight's message, The Little Church That Stood. Because like St. Paul's Chapel, God provided the church in Philadelphia an amazing open door for ministry, even though it was the smallest and least significant of the seven churches. And I find it interesting here that um, they were the one church... While they were the smallest and the least significant, they were the one church that received Christ's highest commendation, more more than any of the other churches, and like the church in Smyrna, received no reprimand at all. Now, obviously, it was not a perfect church, because there is no perfect church, and if you find one, don't go there, because you'll wreck it, and won't be perfect anymore, right? But the Christians in Philadelphia were faithfully serving the Lord, they were obediently following his word, and patiently enduring persecution for the sake of Christ. And so they really provide a model of the kind of church that God blesses and that God uses. And so let's look at this church together and this letter that Christ wrote to this church. And again, we're going to just follow that same basic pattern that all the letters have been following, the correspondent, the city, the church, the commendation, the condemnation. There's no condemnation. We get to skip that point tonight. Um, And then the, the command and the consolation. So let's look first of all at the correspondent, who, of course, every week, the correspondent has beca- is who? Jesus, right? So in, in the previous five letters, we know that Jesus introduced himself with a description taken from John's vision of him in chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, which was predominantly a vision of judgment. And so since Christ had no complaint or no criticism in mind for this church, he chose some encouraging words from somewhere else to introduce himself. And so here he draws some some titles for himself, if you will, from the prophet Isaiah. And he highlighted three of his attributes. The fact that Christ is holy, that he is true, and that he is sovereign. Notice he says, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, he who is holy. So this is a reference to Christ's deity here, and the reason why I say that is because throughout the Old Testament, God repeatedly described himself as the Holy One. So to say that God is holy is to say that he's utterly separate or set apart from sin. He's absolutely pure, which also means he's totally separate and different than us. So no one else compares to him. He's the Holy One. And the Holy One, that term The Holy One was used in the New Testament as a messianic title for the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark 1.24, if you remember, the demons that Jesus confronted would oftentimes say this, I know who you are, you are the Holy One of God. Uh, Even Peter in John 6.69 confessed, we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In other words, you are the Messiah. One commentator said this, the Lord Jesus possesses in undiminished, unaltered essence the holy and sinless nature of God. Because Christ is holy, his church must be holy as well. 1 Peter 1.15, we're familiar with that text. So, he who is holy, and secondly, who is true, who is true. He, he's genuine, he's authentic, he, he's no cheap imitation or counterfeit, he is the real deal. And in the midst of all the falsehood and perversion and the error and deceit that filled the world at that time and that still fills the world at our time, fills the world in our time, Jesus Christ is the way, the what? Truth and the life, John 14, 6. Philadelphia was nicknamed Little Athens. Can you guess why? Because of all the idols and temples in the city. And so Christ was simply reminding them that he is the one and only true God. 
to who we can entrust our entire life and eternity. He is absolutely trustworthy and reliable. He is true, but he's also sovereign. Notice, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. This is an Old Testament allusion to Christ's sovereign control over the kingdom of God. And whenever a key is mentioned in Scripture, it represents authority. Whoever holds the key is the one who's in control. And so in Isaiah 22, verse 22, King Hezekiah was the king over Israel, and there was a man named Eliakim who was chosen by God to administrate the affairs and holdings of Hezekiah's kingdom, and so he alone possessed the power and authority to give access to the king's treasure. He held the keys to the royal vault. And in a similar way, Jesus, who is presented here as the Davidic Messiah, has been entrusted by God with the power and the authority to control entrance to the heavenly kingdom. In other words, who goes to heaven and who doesn't? Matthew 28, verse 8, all authority has been given to me, right, on heaven, in heaven and on earth. And so what Christ sovereignly determines cannot be altered or overturned by anyone or anything. I think that's the meaning there. He says, he, uh, the, the one who, uh, who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens. In other words, what Isaiah 43, 13 is true. I act and who can reverse it? If I open something, no one can shut it. If I shut something, no one can open it. I'm in charge. I have authority. I have the final say. And so the fact that the holy, true, sovereign Lord of the church found nothing to condemn in the Philadelphian church must have been a huge encouragement to them. Now, I know most of what we've been learning here on Wednesday nights has been directed towards believers, to Christians. But I know in a group this size, there are some of you that are not Christians. You're not believers. Um, some of you think you are and you're not. Others of you know you aren't. And as I was reading uh, one particular commentary today, I was so encouraged by the appeal that this commentator made to lost people, people that for some reason have chosen not to trust Christ. And uh, I just want to read for you his words because I think they're very profound. And, and I just want to encourage you, if you know you're sitting here tonight and you know you're not a Christian and you, for, for whatever reason, you've chosen not to trust in Christ, you're holding out to, to being all in as a Christian and being truly committed to Christ. Listen to what he said here. He said, do you trust Christ? Maybe you have consciously decided not to trust Jesus. Let me ask you, is what you trust holy? Are you sure? Is what you trust true? Are you sure? Will what you trust prevail? Are you sure? If you don't trust in Jesus, are you confident enough in what you do trust to bank your soul on it? Are you confident enough that Jesus is not to be trusted, uh, that Jesus is not to be trusted, that you are ready to make the infinite, eternal wager of your everlasting destiny? In other words, are you, are you willing to stake your destiny that, that Jesus isn't the thing to trust in? Will you bet your life on your confidence that Jesus is not worthy of your trust? He says, let me urge you today, bring all your questions to Jesus, bring all your objections to him, bring to Jesus all the things that you prefer to him, your wealth, your job, your entertainment. Bring to Jesus all the things that tempt you to sin, your immorality, your theft, your lies, your gossip. Bring to Jesus everything that you can gather in your attempt to deny him as Lord. Do you know what you will find? You will find that he is holy and everything that you prefer to him is filthy and defiled. Sounds like Cindy's testimony, doesn't it? You will find that he is true and everything that you believe instead of him is false and hollow. You will find that what he opens, no one can shut and what he closes, no one can open and everything that resists him will be destroyed. Test him with your questions. Compare the delights he offers to the paltry pleasures your sins give you. You will find him to be God, the giver of every good thing, and you will find that your myths are cheap lies, and you will find that with the idols of your heart, it is all take and no give. They never 
satisfy. Come to the one who is holy and true, who opens and no one can shut, who closes and no one can open. Come and trust him. Come and worship him. Come and feast yourself on the richest of fare. Isn't that a great call to the lost to come? And if you are lost tonight, I would beg you to respond to that appeal. I don't know how to say it any better than that. So, that is the introduction of the correspondent, Jesus Christ, introducing himself. Now let's talk about the city here to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Philadelphia was located about 30 miles southeast of Sardis, so we're still kind of on the postal route, coming now, uh, we've crested now, we're coming down, we got one more church to go after Philadelphia. Uh, it was a smaller city compared to the others, but it was strategically positioned to make a major impact. It was at, at, the, at the junction uh, of several main trade routes leading, east, e- leading to Eastern Asia. It was considered to be the gateway to the east, uh, ancient travelers would have to pass through Philadelphia on their way to the kingdoms of Lydia and uh, Mysia and, and Phrygia. Uh, it served as an imperial post from which information was disseminated throughout the East, and uh, the Greek language and culture was propagated there. In fact, it said that through the influence of Philadelphia by AD 19, the Lydian language had been completely replaced by Greek. And so Christ planted this small seemingly insignificant church in a very strategic location in order to spread the gospel to to Eastern Asia. Everyone traveling east had to come through Philadelphia. And so what what an excellent opportunity Christ had given this church to share the gospel with them who in turn would share the gospel with others as they traveled eastward. And so we're gonna see in just a moment in verse eight, he talks about how I have put before you an open door. You know, I've always thought that God had his plant lakeside 24 years ago or so now because God knew that this area was just going to explode with growth. And uh, if, if you're not familiar with, you know, the Montgomery area 24 years ago, there was basically, you know, one elementary school. We met in it when we started. There was one uh, high school. I don't even think there was a separate junior high at the time. There was basically one restaurant you could go to after church on Sunday, and, uh, and now it's just completely changed. And, and so uh, I, I just have to believe that the Lord knew all this was going to happen, and, and he put us here, he, he situated us strategically uh, to reach the Lake Conroe area. And f- for those of you that maybe uh, don't have your kids in... Uh, the public schools here at Stewart Creek, for example, elementary school or the junior high up the street here. Uh, it is amazing to watch uh, during the, the week the cars that come and go by our church. There's a lot of cars, hundreds of cars go by our church every day, just dropping their kids off at Stewart Creek Elementary and the junior high. In fact, I've, I've always dreamed about somehow harnessing that potential, that op- opportunity, that open door if you've ever sat in the car rider line, right? We all paid our dues in car rider line, every parent, I guess, at some point. Um, but on, on the, the opening week of school, the second week of August when they open school again, this road will be lined with cars just stopped, dead, and it'll go all the way down this road, Stewart Creek Road, and then all the way down uh, Freeport Drive, both directions. Two people just sitting there waiting to pick up their kids. And I just want to cast a vision here, and I hope somebody catches it tonight, that, that what a cool ministry we could have on the opening day of school. I think it's a Thursday. Uh, maybe it could spill over into Friday as well. But to just organize some people from our church and think of something creative that would be a blessing to those people just kind of sitting in car rider line, waiting for their kids, uh, ready to pick up their kids, maybe a bottle of water or something you know, a candy bar or just something thoughtful. Uh, and we could just say, hey, you know, we're here at Lakeside. Just want you to know we're here. We love you guys. Appreciate you. Welcome back to school. You know, nothing like a full-on, you know, 
you know, give them God, man, Jesus, you while they're sitting there. You've got a captive audience in the street, right? They can't go anywhere. They can't move. And, you, get, you know, I'm not talking about, like, preaching the gospel to every car. In fact, years ago, we actually bought signs, had signs made that shared the gospel, and we just put them down the street. So we knew people were sitting there, and they would read sign number one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They moved 10 feet. The next verse, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. They moved again. You know, but God demonstrates his love for us. And that, you know, Christ, you know, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then they move another 10 feet. And then they see the next one. Whoever shall you know, call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I mean, that was just one attempt years ago. We need to, we need to make those signs again, right? Um, so anyway, just throwing that out there, second Thursday of August. If anybody's got some time and anybody got some vision, I would love to see us do something really fun and cool out there just to love our community, just love them and uh, show them that we care and that we're here for them. And um, I just think we can grow in that. I just feel like it's an open door that the Lord's given us. Um, Let me mention another fact about the city of Philadelphia that's going to come into play towards the end of this letter. Uh, The city was situated... uh, close to this volcanic plain whose fertile soil was ideally suited for vineyards. Even to this day, there's some beautiful vineyards uh, in the this, in this same region. But being so close to a volcano made it susceptible to earthquakes. And in AD 17, a powerful earthquake leveled Philadelphia and other neighboring cities. And in the years that followed, the city was frequently rocked by aftershocks, and it caused people to flee the city for fear of being buried alive. And so this, this nerve-wracking experience motivated some of the inhabitants of Philadelphia to move outside the city to live in makeshift tents and huts in the surrounding fields. And those who were brave enough to remain in the city, they would use various devices to support and strengthen the walls and houses against the re- recurring aftershocks. I, I can appreciate that dynamic because we lived through the Northridge quake. I don't even remember when it was, back in 2004 maybe? What was it? Yeah, thank you. There, there I am, honey. I'm, my, my, Zach was born. Zach, you were pregnant with Zach. First thing I did at 4.31 in the morning, and our bed started going like this in the air, and we're, we started having our quiet time, number one, really quick. And, uh, and I remember immediately rolling over and putting my leg over my wife's stomach because Zach was inside her. And I, just thought, I didn't know what was going to happen. We thought, I mean, it was the fear of God. It really was. We had no idea how that the whole thing was going to end. But I remember our apartment that we were living in was trashed. Uh, not just everything inside of it. It looked like somebody just coming in with a baseball bat and just smashed everything. Um, but even the structurally, the, the unit itself, uh, we couldn't live there for a season. And so uh, I remember just driving around for two weeks after... Uh, the earthquake, and there were still aftershocks happening regularly, and, and most people were literally sleeping outside in their front yard. They would just bring their mattresses out on the lawn or in the back of their pickup trucks because they didn't want to be under a structure because it was so terrifying. Anybody that went through that initial earthquake did not want to be under a roof. <laughs> we wanted to be out in the open, and so that was the dynamic here in, in Philadelphia, that these people kind of lived with that fear, and so they decided we're not even going to try to go back to our homes. We're going to live out here in tents. Well, hold that thought, because we're going to see how that was very meaningful in regards to what something Christ says at the end here. But let's talk about the church here, uh, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Again, Philadelphia is not mentioned anywhere in the book of Acts. Um, So we just know that this small group of faithful saints uh, who were walking with the Lord, seeking to honor and glorify his name, uh, you know, with, with their lives together, uh, was perhaps uh, the fruit of Paul's ministry at some point, one of his missionary journeys. Um, but that's all we really know is what it says here uh, in this letter. Now let's look at the commendation, the commendation. Notice he says in verse eight, I know your deeds. And again, this is, kind of been uh, an emphasis on in every one of these letters that Jesus Christ reminded every one of these churches that he is the all-knowing head of the church, that he is everywhere. He's omnipresent, he's omniscient, he's a silent observer of every worship service. 
He's observing us right now. Uh, he, he's a silent observer in every Sunday school class and every elders meeting, which we had this morning. Um, he was there in every 220 next level meeting, every grow group, every Ironman, every woman's Bible study, right? He looks into every one of our hearts and sees what we're really like. Well, the good news here in this case is he saw nothing in the actions or attitudes of these believers in Philadelphia that caused him any concern. He had nothing bad to say about them, but there was much to commend. In fact, Jesus commended four things that characterized the believers in Philadelphia. Number one, they had little power. You were saying, well, why is that something to commend? That doesn't seem like commendable. You have little power. Um, he says, behold, I put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power. Again, this was not a rebuke. This was not a negative con- comment. It was just merely a statement of fact that most likely referred to their size or perhaps their social status compared to other churches uh, the other churches that we've been studying, they were, they were the smallest in size. Uh, perhaps their members were poor. Um, and so consequently, this church had limited resources. And yet even though they were few in number and had few resources, they were still able to make a powerful impact in the surrounding community and really around the world. People were getting saved. Lives were being transformed. The gospel was being proclaimed. It reminds me of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 26, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that you, so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. In other words, God gets all the glory. Because it's obvious it's not us, right? So here we see an example of what Paul said later in 2 Corinthians about uh, God's power being perfected in weakness. Little power, right? If we have little power, it, it exalts God's power. Um, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses and with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so they they had learned to be content with their weakness or their smallness, if you will, because they... That, that gave God the opportunity to put on display his might and his strength through them. So I think this is a good reminder for us in, in the day and age of the mega church, right? A church's strength is not in its size, but in the size of its God. This was not a high-powered, high-profile mega church. This was a small church with a big God. Steve Lawson, again, I mentioned this uh, in the previous weeks. He's written a really good commentary on the seven churches of Revelation called Final Call. And he says this, quote, We live in the day of the megachurch. Large, towering churches dominate the landscape. For those who worship and serve in smaller congregations, that can be discouraging, even intimidating. We must remember that spiritual success is not dictated by the size of the church's buildings, budgets, and buses. Rather, it is determined by having great faith in a big God. What matters is not how big or small the church is. What truly matters is how big their God is. It is far better to be a little church with a big God than a big church with a little God. Little churches accomplish great ministry when they serve a holy, true, and sovereign God, a big God who can open big doors. Amen? So, he commends them for their little power, He also commends them for having kept his word. In other words, they were faithful to uphold the truth of of God's word. They they preached it, they taught it, they believed it, they obeyed it, they lived it, they shared it with others. Whatever they did was guided by and grounded in God's word. And, and, And that's the kind of church we need to be. I think too many churches fall victim to the latest gimmicks of the church growth movement and how can we get our church to grow 
and they're caught up with, with trying to build bigger and better churches or church, while well, what we need to do instead of instead is, is, is return to keeping God's word. That's what matters most, and trusting Christ to build his church in his way and in his time. And if we're just faithful to do what the Bible says, Christ is going to bless our church. So he commends them for their little power, that they kept the word, and that they have not denied my name, he says. They, they, you've not denied my name. In other words, they stood firm in the midst of persecution. They refused to deny their faith in Jesus Christ. They weren't afraid or embarrassed to acknowledge that they were Christians. They unashamedly shared Christ wherever they went and with whoever they met. And the, the name of Jesus was constantly on their lips. And then finally, fourthly, it says that they have kept the word of my perseverance. This is verse 10, jumping down to verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance. Some of you have an NIV, it's a little clearer. You've kept my command to endure patiently. In other words, they persevered faithfully through all their trials, all their difficulties. They remained steadfastly committed to the Lord and, and living in obedience to his word. Revelation 14, 12 says it this way. Here is the per perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So because of their faithfulness to the Lord, he blessed them with a tremendous opportunity for ministry and service. Notice verse 8 again. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Elsewhere in Scripture, an open door depicts an opportunity to proclaim the gospel or, or some other ministry opportunity. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 8, Paul said, I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service is open to me. 2 Corinthians 2, 12, now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, he walked through it. Colossians 4, 3, Paul prayed, or excuse me, asked the Colossian believers to pray that God may open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. And so I am, as I mentioned earlier, in light of the proximity of Philadelphia, they were used by God to be a launching point for the gospel to spread into the east. And I, again, I think the, the principle is simply this, faithfulness unlocks greater doors for service. Matthew 25, 21. Jesus said, well done and good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of what? Many things. He said it again in Luke 16, 10. He was faithful in very little, in a very little thing is faithful also in much. In other words, once we have proven our trustworthiness in little things, God will see fit to provide us with even greater ministry opportunities. One of the, my favorite examples of that is sitting right here in front of me, Mike Goins, one of our faithful elders. Um, when Mike and Michelle came here, they were brand new believers. And they were just ready to grow and serve and plug in. And so one of the very first responsibilities that we asked Mike to, to fulfill was to be Captain Fun on Wednesday night. And uh, he was, you know, a jock. He liked, to, he liked kids and he was an athlete and he could have fun. And so we just had him run the games on Wednesday night. And uh, he was faithful with that, did a great job with that. And, and next thing you know, we're, we're asking him to do other things like, hey, maybe you could, uh, maybe you could help us lead a grow group, you know, and uh, maybe, maybe you could teach a, a Sunday school class. And, and, uh, and, and next thing you know, you know, we wake up and Mike's sitting around the, the, the table in our elders meetings. And, uh, and then a few uh, months go by and next thing you know, he's preaching a sermon from this pulpit. What, what, how does that happen? You, you just, by the, it's the grace of God, amen, Right. This is not praise Mike Goins night. Uh, this is praise God night. But this is, this, it's just an example of you, you're just faithful with whatever God puts in front of you. Whatever that little thing is he gives you to do, you do it with all your might. 
And guess what? God's going to bless you with more opportunities. And you do, you do good with that, he'll give you more opportunities, right? It's just the way it works. Biblical principle. Now, we're talking about open doors here, right? God opening doors for ministry. If there's an open door, that implies there's a wall, right? There's not a door just sitting out there in the middle of nowhere, unless you're thinking of Monsters, Inc., right? Doors flying around. I just had to wake the kids up for a second, okay? Um, But yeah, so that means there's a wall, right? There's some kind of barrier that has to be passed through. And so opportunities typically involve obstacles. Unbelief looks at these obstacles and the barriers and the difficulties while faith focuses on the door. Unbelief says, well, the obstacles are too great. It costs too much. It'll never work. We're never, we've never done it that way before. But faith says, hey, here's an open door. Let's step through it. Joshua and Caleb would be a good example of that. They saw opportunity in the land of Canaan. They saw an open door, whereas the other 10 spies, all they saw were the obstacles. Well, there's big guys. They got really big guys over there. These giants in the land, we're grasshoppers in comparison. The, The point is this. Whenever a church or an individual moves forward in faith, they're sure to meet the devil head on. And at the threshold of every open door of opportunity waits some kind of obstacle, some kind of evil opposition. And Satan was waiting for this small band of believers in Philadelphia like a lion crouching in hiding, right? We know that we learned that from First Peter, the, the, the devil's like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But notice where, I, where I'm going with this. Verse 9, behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of who? Satan who say that they're Jews and are not, but lie. So we've heard this expression already in uh, chapter 2, verse 9. He mentions the synagogue of Satan in the church of Smyrna. They had a, a synagogue there where the Jews would worship in both of these cities. But Christ called it a synagogue of Satan. Why? Because they, the Christians there in Philadelphia faced opposition from unbelieving Jews who denied that Jesus was the Messiah. And so consequently, they persecuted the church. They slandered the Christians. And although they were Jews racially and culturally and ceremonially, they weren't Jews spiritually. At least that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. In other words, the, the claims these Jews, were, these Jews in Philadelphia were making weren't true. It says they lie. They were of their father, the devil, who was the father of all lies. And notice what Jesus promised here. This is so cool. He says, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. So Jesus promised these believers that he would bring these so-called Jews to their knees before them and they would be forced to admit that Christ's followers were the true objects of his affection. And that come and bow at your feet, bowing at someone's feet, back then symbolized total defeat, total submission. And I think Jesus was borrowing imagery from the Old Testament there describing the future day when unbelieving Gentiles will bow down and, uh, to the believing remnant of Israel. This is a book of Isaiah. And in these passages, it's the Gentiles or the heathen nations who will bow down before Israel and acknowledge that their God is the one true God. But here uh, in this letter, Christ re- reversed the roles And he said, his followers are the people of God and the Jewish unbelievers are the pagans who come and acknowledge the love of the Messiah for the church. In other words, those who claim, this is the irony of this, those who claim to be God's chosen people would have to admit that the Christians they so despise were actually God's chosen people. 
Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. What a great promise. But that's not all. Notice the, uh, the, the, the next promise, another wonderful promise that he made to the church in Philadelphia. Because of their proven steadfastness to him, in the midst of all sorts of trials and temptations, he would spare them from the ultimate trial that was about to come upon the entire world. Notice he says in verse 10. We're covering all these phrases, right? We're getting there, working our way through this. Verse 10, because you've kept the word of my perseverance. In other words, because you've faithfully endured, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. This hour of testing is a, is a, is a term, uh, I think a reference to Daniel's 70th week vision in Daniel chapter 9. And again, we don't have time to go down this rabbit hole too deeply tonight. But it's definitely cause for further study. But this was this, this hour of testing, also referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah 30, um, or as it's referred to here in the book of Revelation, the tribulation that is unfold, really it unfolds in chapter 6 all the way through chapter 19. There's a description of this seven-year period of intense, devastating, divine judgment that will affect the entire world. And if you know anything about the book of Revelation, you know the Antichrist is involved, right? Uh, deceiving the nation of Israel. He reveals who he really is. And then the Lord returns, right, to punish him and to ve- defeat him. Um, and so what was Jesus promising here? Jesus promised the church in Philadelphia that they would, they would be delivered from this awful demonstration of God's wrath on sinful mankind. That's essentially what the tribulation is all about. God judging the earth for their rebellion against him. And the sweeping nature of this promise, I think, extends far beyond this one congregation in Philadelphia. It applies to the church in a general sense. And this is where we get into the whole uh, topic of dispensationalism, if you're familiar with that term. Those of us who take a dispensational view of the end times, this is one of the key verses in the Bible that supports our conviction of a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. And the rapture of the church is referred to in, in three other passages in the New Testament. You've got John 14, uh, verse 1, talking about, uh, I will, I'm going to leave, um, but I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And when, when, when it's prepared, I'm going to come back uh, and I'm going to get you. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, this is the chapter that Cindy was referring to every once in a while. She'd read this, uh, this reference to the rapture. This is First Thessalonians 4, 13. Um, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. And then the other reference would be 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51, that says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this imperishable must put on imperishable, but this mortal must put on immortality. But when this, imper- when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So, each of these passages talks about Christ returning to take his bride, the church, to spend eternity with him in heaven. And the often debated question is, well, when's that going to happen? And there's three basic views of the timing of the rapture, if you believe in a rapture, uh, in relation to the tribulation, right? It could come at the end of the tribulation, so that would be the post-tribulational view. Um, 
But that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because it says that the church is coming with Christ in the sky to fight against Satan. So how's that? We go up and we come right back down again? How, how would we have time to pick out a horse, you know, because we we're going to be riding horses. I'm not sure about that. Um, some say it comes in the middle. That would be the mid-tribulational, or there's a view called pre-wrath rapture. Uh, some of you may be familiar with that view. Marv Rosenthal kind of popularized that view. It's, it's essentially a mid-tribulation rapture view, sometime in between uh, the beginning and the end of the tribulation. Um, or it comes before the tribulation, which is called pre-tribulationals. And so we just look at this verse, take it for face value, it seems to indicate that believers will be removed from the earth before the time of tribulation. It's the most natural way to understand this. He says, I will keep you from, doesn't mean to preserve through something, but to preserve outside the sphere of something in the Greek there. So if Christ intended to convey that the church would be preserved through the tribulation, I think it would have been more appropriate for him to use the Greek prepositions for in or, or through here. And so again, the most natural way I think of understanding this is not to be preserved through, but to be kept from. In other words, we're not going to be present when it happens. And I think there are, there are a couple other obvious reasons why it's safe to conclude that the church will be raptured before the tribulation. First of all, the church on earth is mentioned only here in the book of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3. And then it's mentioned in heaven, the church in heaven is chapters 4 and 5, and then after chapter 5, from 6 on, you don't see anything about the church when, when, when John's describing this incredible judgment that God will pour on the earth. It, like, it doesn't mention the church. Secondly, those who become believers during that tribulation, when all the seals and the bowls are being uh, 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 you know, uh, unleashed, um, they, they, uh, they, they're not preserved. In fact, many of them will be martyred. Uh, again, we see that quite often in, in the book of Revelation through that time of tribulation, believers getting martyred. And so Christ's promise of preservation, I think, is meaningless if believers face the same fate as sinners during the tribulation. Um, in other words, sinners are going to be Dying, Christians are going to be dying. Um, that doesn't make sense, right? There should be some reward for the believer during that time. So I think it's just best to conclude that, that Jesus was saying that because they had passed so many little tests already, that he would spare them from the ultimate test. They, they had proven themselves. Um, this may be a terrible illustration, but I'll never forget when I was at the Master's College and I uh, was taking some history class, and it was my favorite professor, by the way, just an outstanding teacher, loved the class. And so anyway, it was time for the final exam, and this was my senior year, one of my last finals I had to take before I got to marry Kelly. That was what I was gunning for. I was like, okay, let's get this finals behind me. Two weeks later, I'm marrying Kelly. Um, and so anyway, I, I, we sat down. I remember it was this upstairs room. The windows were open. It was kind of hot. The sun was in the afternoon. The sun was coming in. And the, and the professor walked around and handed out the blue book, right? The little blue books. You remember you had to fill that thing as much as you just started writing unconsciously, just filling it up, hoping something that you said might impress the professor enough to give you a passing grade, right? So anyway, um, he passes the blue books out and he says, okay, go ahead, proceed. And so anyway, I get after it. I'm just starting to write like feverishly and maybe about two minutes into this thing, I didn't even see him coming, but he comes up from behind me and he, he pulls the blue book out from under me. And I'm like, he says, Ken, he says, you already have an A in the class. You don't have to take the final. I look around, I'm like, yes! And I got my stuff and I got up and left. And I didn't have to go through the tribulation of that final exam, right? Because I had already done good enough on those other tests, right? That he was confident that I knew the material. So anyway, that was, he tricked me. I'll never forget that. It was great, great little tool of a professor. But anyway, I know that is, uh, the scripture is not as clear and specific as we wish it was when it comes to the timing of Christ's return. I haven't even gotten into post-millennialism yet where, you know, that whole issue of, you know, forget about 
the tribulation and the millennial. It's just like Christ is going to come at the end of the world, period. Uh, and how does that look and how does that work? So lots of different views of the end times. Um, again, I don't think the issue is that we need to be worried that we're going to get left behind. Um, the question is, are you ready, right? Are you ready for Christ to return? That's the big picture issue. Um, he's coming back. That's, that's the one thing all eschatological views agree on. Jesus is returning sometime, and we need to be ready. So we move to the commendation, and guess what? We don't have to say anything about the condemnation because there is no condemnation. Now, how about the command? Um, look at verse 11. Look at verse 11, just moving on here. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. So he's, again, this fits into, I think, the whole pre-tribulational rapture view. He's just saying, hey, I'm coming quickly. In other words, the next uh, event in end times timeline is the return of Christ in the form of the rapture. I'm coming quickly. And, and, uh, but until then, be faithful, be loyal, prove the genuineness of your salvation, right? This whole idea of overcomers, and that's what he's talking about, the crown there. He says, hold fast what you have so that you, no one will take your crown. Um, we, we've already looked in, at Revelation 2.10. Uh, he mentions the crown there with the church in, in Smyrna. Um, it, it's de- defined literally as the crown of life, Whereas the Greek text literally says the crown which is life, and so the crown or reward for those who faithfully endure to the end is eternal life with all of its attendant rewards. James chapter 1 uh, verse 12 says it this way, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial for once he has been approved he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So there's a little command there to stay faithful in light of his imminent return. And then finally, the consolation here, the consolation. Look at verse 12. He who overcomes, there's our overcomer concept, right, that we've been seeing in every one of these letters, um, which is synonymous with being a Christian, a true Christian, you're an overcomer. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. So here Jesus is ending again with his usual words of hope, of comfort, consolation, and he promised four blessings to all those who faithfully follow Christ to the end. Number one is permanence. Permanence. He says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And a pillar was an ancient symbol of stability and strength. In fact, if you go to uh, any of these ancient cities, not just of these seven churches, but anywhere over in Europe, Asia, you see uh, ancient cities in the ruins. Typically, what is the only thing that's left? Sticking up. The pillars, right? They're the only thing that lasted. And so it's interesting. I was watching this video about the city of Philadelphia, which is the modern Turkish city of Alashir. And you can go there today where it's built on top of Philadelphia. And the only thing that remains intact are three columns or pillars of an ancient church. That's the only remains of Christianity in this in this city that is 99.9% Muslim, which is really a sad commentary on what happened to this church, right? Well, how, how did it, like, Christianity just get pushed out by Islam? That's a whole big, long story we can't get into. But uh, interesting, he said, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of God. Again, it's just, it is fascinating to, to see these three huge pillars uh, from uh, an ancient church still standing there in Philadelphia. But notice what he goes on to say here, and he will not go out from it anymore. So to people who had gotten so used to fleeing their city because of earthquakes and were forced to camp out in the open country, I mean, this promise that they would not have to leave heaven, if you will, but they could rest secure in their heavenly home must have been 
extremely comforting to this group of people. So there was permanence. Number two, there was ownership. Ownership, notice he says, uh, and I will write on him the name of my God. So Christ promised to write on them three different names, okay? Uh, The name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and my new name. But this this idea of, of, of writing your name on something, in those days, writing your name on something was a sign of ownership. I mean, if you've seen Toy Story, you get it. Right? I mean, Woody and Buzz, both on their foot, what was written on there? Andy. Why? Because Andy owned, they belonged to Andy. He owned them. Um, So as believers, God has written his name on us with indelible ink to show us that we belong to him. We are his forever. So everybody look on your bottom of your foot and see if Christ is on there. Jesus, right, is is our owner, right? But that's, I mean, go ahead, write it on your shoe, kids. I mean, that would be cool. That'd be a conversation starter, right? Hey, why does it say Jesus on your foot? Well, do you ever watch Toy Story? I, I mean, you're off to sharing the gospel there. Um, so, so there was permanence, there was ownership, and then there was citizenship. He says, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. So it, Christ promised that they would be given all the rights and all the privileges as a citizen in the New Jerusalem, which is Revelation's term for heaven, the city in which believers will live in for all eternity. We see that in Revelation 21 and 22. But then lastly, the other blessing here that is promised is relationship. Relationship. Notice he says, he says, we'll, we'll write a, uh, the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. Revelation 19.12 says, His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. You say, well, what is that name? Well, ask Jesus because he's the only one that knows it, right? Well, what's the point here? I think it, it, just, it just represents when Christ returns, we will experience the glorious fullness of who he is. And in heaven, Jesus will take us to a whole new level in our relationship to him. We will come face to face with him for the first time and see him for who he really is, and we will be instantly and completely transformed into his likeness. And it is then that we will enter into the sweetest, deepest, most intimate relationship with Christ for all eternity. He'll write on us his new name. And then there's that familiar reminder, verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. In other words, you got ears? I see him, can't hide him. So what are you gonna do with what you just heard, right? And so I think the spirit is calling out to us tonight and to each one of us tonight. And I think in many ways, we could be likened to the church in Philadelphia and what I mean by that is God has set before us great ministry opportunity. He's provided us with unprecedented opportunities to reach this fast-growing community with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he wants to use us to share with everyone that we meet the joy of living life according to the principles of his word. And so as we're faithful to effectively minister to those he's, he's already brought to us, God will entrust us with greater opportunities to minister to more people, and I think that's what we're seeing happening. We're having a hard time keeping track of the new folks. Um, and that's a good thing. I think the Lord's just being gracious. And so God will continue to bless our faithfulness in little things, providing us with more opportunities to serve him in bigger ways in the future. And so I just want to ask you to think about your role in the life of this church. There are so many avenues for you to serve. And so is there a particular opportunity, a door of ministry that, that Christ has opened to you? Is there 
a potential way you can serve him, whether by leading a, a, a grow group or a, a teach a Sunday school class or disciple children in an adventure club this fall or serve in our student ministries or show hospitality to our new folks who come by being a part of our parking lot ministry or you know, being a part of our welcome team uh, or Randy and Marilyn Judd who just take anybody they meet for the first time on Sunday out to lunch, whether they want to go to lunch or not. Randy's line is straight up. He goes, do you eat? I've heard him. I've seen him do it. He just, he meets the new person. He says, do you eat? And they're like, uh, yeah. And he's like, well, where do you want to go to lunch? And it's just fun. I mean, it's like he just loves these new people and they take them out and they make a great connection with them. And just, there's so many different creative ways that you can serve here. Start a new ministry. You're like, well, how come they don't have this? Well, maybe that's why God brought you to this church because he wants you to start that ministry. The key is to make yourself available, to get involved. Don't just sit there like a, like a pew potato, even though they're not pews, but you know what I mean by that, right? And so I want to invite you, as Christ, I think, would invite you tonight through this letter, to step through that door that Christ has opened for you and be used by him to build up this body of Christ, this body of believers, so that we can reach this community for him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time that we've been able to, again, hear the words of Christ. We know that there's great power in the words of Christ. There's no power in my words. There's power in Christ's words. And so as Christ has spoken to us tonight, I pray that uh, he would have his way in our lives, in the life of our church, that you would help us to be more of who you want us to be for Christ's sake and his glory, we pray. Amen.